All right. Well, welcome. Guy, I'm really excited. We're on a new platform today, and I'm here with someone that I respect and appreciate, and I'm honored now at this stage of our relationship to call a friend and partner as we uh, try and make the world a better place, Aaron Hurst. Aaron, how are you doing? Doing great. Excited to uh, try this new platform with you. Yeah, we'll, we'll give it a go. And uh, just a quick um, housekeeping. Uh, we are in a new environment uh, called AirMeet. Uh, it's pretty self-explanatory about how you can navigate around and you can see the sessions. You can uh, enter uh, comments, questions in the chat and question area. You can see who else is in the environment and the attendees over to the right. Uh, you can also raise your hand. Uh, we will take questions uh, towards the end. Uh, those were come through the question box. Um, given the number of people, it would be hard to turn it on uh, for everybody to voice their questions. But uh, we are going to go through the day. The agenda is also in the link on the Pafal campus as well as on Pafal.net, so you can see the sessions that are forthcoming today. But over the next hour or so, uh, Aaron is going to have the floor. He's going to present his insights and ideas on, around how relationships and specifically peer-to-peer relationships are so important to remaining engaged and looking out for, you know, our well-being. So without further ado, uh, Aaron, founder of the Taproot Foundation and now Imperative. Aaron, thanks for being here. You take it away, sir. No, absolutely. And it's uh, exciting to be here. I love your community. Uh, the combination of people analytics and the future of work is like, I think it was like when chocolate and peanut butter like found each other. It was like just a, a perfect marriage of ingredients. Um, so excited to be here. And uh, I'll continue a friend as well and pr- proud to be one. And my team always is like, oh, are you going on with Mr. Handsome? So that's that's your name on my team is Mr. Handsome. So um, I was uh, I was a little like, well, what about me? But apparently, like, you, you get the you get the props. I don't know what I am, um, but I'll gladly uh, award that to you. So. Uh, so I'm going to be spending the next hour or so with everybody uh, talking about really the research and journey we've been on around trying to really figure out how do we make work more meaningful? How do we enable engagement as it's been sort of labeled for a long time? Um, something that's actually obtainable versus something that we just talk about and never seems to really um, get any better. So and I'm, I'm learning this new platform. So uh, you're along. You're, we're sort of along for the same ride. So. My story and the story around this research really begins, as Al said, um, around my last organization, which was called the Taproot Foundation. It was a, a nonprofit organization that was uh, really founded with this idea that nonprofits, NGOs, they need marketing, they need tech, they need HR, they need finance, just like corporations do. But they're often priced out of the market. They're not able to afford them. And what I realized was that there was this pent-up demand for purpose in the workplace that people uh, wanted to be able to uh, to give back. People wanted to do more than just volunteer in a traditional way and created a, a movement around doing pro bono work outside the legal profession. And we got funding initially from Bill Draper, um, sort of the godfather of uh, venture, plan, uh, venture capital, um, scaled to seven cities, uh, worked with the White House to build a national campaign with CEOs around this. Um, we were then able to work with BMW, take this all the way around the world to uh, 30 different countries from China um, to Costa Rica. And it was just this incredible journey of seeing people at their best, um, fulfilled in their pro bono work, um, making a difference, seeing what they were capable of, bringing sort of dignity to work. But what, what I saw as we looked at the marketing for this was that the number one reason people said they did pro bono work was because their work itself wasn't fulfilling. 
that they weren't getting this need for purpose and meaning from their work. Um, and they were having to basically take a supplement. They're having to have a vitamin, if you will, to address this inadequacy uh, of their work. And it really struck me that the challenge before me was not how do we make pro bono work more accessible? How do we help people do stuff outside of work? It was how can we actually figure out what to do about the state of what we spend the majority of our time doing, which is not volunteering. And one of the first things we did is we actually partnered with uh, Dr. Anna Tavis, who will be with you later today, um, and a, a close friend of mine. Uh, uh, both lived together in Brooklyn, done a lot of work together, and she partnered with me to do a study on the state of purpose and fulfillment across the U.S. Um, and what we found was that 66% of the U.S. workforce was unfulfilled, 66%. Um, and to me, that was just such a important uh, un- the, uh, discovery, just to realize like how many people are not getting basic needs met through work and what the impact of that is on our workplace, on our lives, on our families, um, et cetera. So the question to me, as I saw that data that Anna and I pulled together, was not like how do we solve this problem? What are they, like, let's cut it and slice it and dice it and um, find complex answers. I knew that if there was going to be an answer to this, it had to be a simple one. There had to be a simple answer to this because most major change happens through a simple thing, not through a thousand things. So the question that I put before my team was, is there a simple solution to this complex problem? Because, again, what I've seen is just consulting firm after consulting firm, you know, uh, data analyst after data analyst, leader after leader, um, just continuing to, like, make this super complicated. And none of these things seem to be making a real difference. Um, God knows people are spending a ton of money on it, but didn't see work fundamentally getting better for the vast majority of people. So Al and team, I don't know how uh, how uh, religiously um, you've read this book, but this is sort of my my personal Bible. I, I just absolutely love uh, Chip and Dan's uh, book, Switch, uh, which came out about 10 years ago and was a real game changer for me and that it really articulated how I think about the world and laid it out as a uh, a recipe if you will, of how do you fundamentally like find simple moves that enable real change to happen. And um, their approach, um, as I translate it, is sort of gather the data and really understand um, the state of being, uh, understand what the problem is, understand the population. They find uh, what they call bright spots. I call them positive deviants. I think it's a lot more fun. Are people who are basically um, having better results than everyone else. So even in a bad situation like the workplace where two-thirds of people are unfulfilled, that still means a third of people are fulfilled. So um, who are those people? What do they look like? How are they different from the rest of the population? And then let's define what it is, like the one or two things they do that's different than everyone else and figure out how to propagate those behaviors. Um, so it's about simplifying it. And the story they tell in their book, um, which I just went back and reviewed in preparation for today, was actually around trying to address uh, malnutrition uh, and children in Vietnam and how the millions of dollars have been spent studying this. Nothing was making a difference. And these researchers went into a small village and they were able to look at, you know, the total population of uh, children, look at which ones were actually um, showing signs that they were nourished, not malnourished, sort of those few people who were actually uh, kids who were, were doing well. And then they looked at what are they doing that's different from everybody else. And what they found was that the parents were feeding them four times a day, not twice a day. Um, they found that the parents were actually bringing in food that was considered inappropriate for kids, which was shrimp and crab from the rice patties. It was considered adult food, but they were giving it to the kids. 
um, as well as uh, sweet potato greens, which were considered low-class food, and therefore they didn't want to give it to their kids. And then finally, they weren't just sort of letting the kids eat until they were full. They actually were strongly uh, encouraging them and being active in making sure they ate enough. And sure enough, um, when they went and changed behavior to have people do these same things, they saw a 65% increase in uh, nutrition rates among children. So I find this approach to be just brilliant. Looking at the population of the problem, looking at who's actually uh, having success, seeing what they do differently, and then let's apply it to everyone else and see if that, that makes a difference. And that's what we look to do around this issue around uh, people's uh, fulfillment, their engagement, their success at work. Oh, getting too ahead of myself. So the first thing we did was gathering data, right? So worked with the University of Michigan, NYU with Anna, PwC, uh, LinkedIn, we did a global study of uh, all their members around the world, um, really looked at this really large data sample to really understand what separates and what is the definition of the people who are um, unfulfilled versus those that are fulfilled. And let's look at it across cultures, um, let's look at it across different geographies, different professions, et cetera, to truly understand um, these two different populations, the fulfilled and the unfulfilled. So the first question we looked at is, like, who are these positive deviants? Um, who are these deviants who are um, doing what they're not supposed to do and actually being fulfilled at work? Um, what do they look like? Uh, what, are the, what characterizes them? Um, are they, you know, is there anything that we can do to predict who they are? Um, trying to really just sort of understand what is this population of people who are not operating the way that you're supposed to. And what we found is we found these positive deviants in every industry. Uh, a lot of people thought they were just going to be in like nonprofits or healthcare or education, these sort of purposeful professions, but we found them in every industry. Um, there wasn't really tied to industry. We found them at every income level. Um, we found it at every demographic, um, every level. Um, so this was not just certain like levels of hierarchy and in every role. So we were able to really identify that this truly is something that's like universal and human. That's not about the, the role, the profession, the income level, um, that this truly was uh, a population that was doing something different um, regardless of all these other variables, which was very exciting just to see um, that that was the case. The next thing we want to look at is like, the critical moves. So, what in God's name are these positive events doing that is different from their peers? So why is it this woman is just glowing and she has um, not just waves coming out of her head, but it looks like dots and she also has a plus sign. So what is it that this woman is doing that is different than everyone else? Um, what are the couple of things they're doing differently in their work um, that predicts their success? The two things we found that really stood out about the people who were fulfilled. Number one, was they know what fulfills them. So people who actually are able to say, I know what fulfills me, that they have self-awareness around who they are, what matters to them, um, were substantially more likely to be fulfilled, um, which makes a lot of sense. Um, when we actually have a roadmap, when we have that self-awareness, it makes sense that we would uh, be able to do that. Um, the second one was that they engaged in what we called peer coaching, that they regularly worked with peers, not managers, um, not uh outside coaches, they actually worked with their peers and their peers regularly supported them in this constant process of showing up as their best self, of reflecting, of talking about their work, um, of problem solving and taking ownership of their work with their peers. So this was the second behavior. And what we saw was that if we could figure out a way, we believe, to have people know what fulfills them and engage in this regular peer coaching, that might be the equivalent of the four meals, crab and shrimp, 
and sweet potato greens uh, for uh, people in work. So the first thing we tried, because it was the easiest piece, is we created a purpose assessment. We said, look, there's lots of assessments out there that tell you your strengths, that tell you your personality. We need to help people understand their purpose. And we built out an assessment uh, scientifically designed to help people actually in 10 minutes identify what fulfills them, to identify their purpose. And people, I mean, absolutely loved it. They just said it was like um, remarkable how it defined who they were. They were so inspired by it. Um, we had, you know, about 150,000 people uh, do it uh, from companies all around the U.S., mostly but some globally. Um, and uh, what we found is that that, frankly, did not make much of a difference. Uh, most of the time, once people did this, within a few months, it just kind of like drifted off because it wasn't like a deep enough um, understanding of what fulfills them, and it wasn't integrated into their identity, into their work um, in a meaningful way. And we realized that just simply focusing on that first critical move of sort of getting definition around what fulfills you was not enough to make it work. And a lot of that reason is just we're crazy busy, and we don't spend time reflecting at work. Um, we don't uh, have time to actually put those kind of learnings into, into practice. We don't have the support around us to do that. So even if you have this, you know, go to a great workshop, you take an assessment, like these things just fade away over time because we're so freaking busy at work. Um, we're so distracted. Um, we're not able to actually process um, what we're doing. So, again, we realized this in of itself was not the answer. And that's where we really started to dig into this peer coaching piece. And why would it be that people had such better results when they were engaged in peer coaching? And what we came to, and this is probably the most ex uh, important slide um, in the deck um, in this conversation today, what we saw was that we have an incredible epidemic around loneliness. I mean, even before COVID hit, 60, roughly 60% of Americans reported being lonely. Um, and that has just gone up since uh, the pandemic with the number one issue of working from home being social isolation. And why this is so important and why this ties to this uh, narrative is that when we're lonely, um, and we've all you know, been lonely at times, um, what happens is that actually our ability to process stress and anxiety goes way down. And actually, it starts to fuel uh, depression. And the reason this is so important is that when we're stressed, anxious, and depressed, it actually neurologically lowers our capacity to connect with others. We're unable to connect with other people. So what does that do? It makes us lonelier. So, okay, now we're lonelier. What happens? More stress, more anxiety, more depression. What happens? We have less capacity to connect. So you see this horrible flywheel happening where people are losing the ability to truly um, take care of themselves, and they're becoming more and more detached. And the implications of this have been shown in science and research over and over again. So when we're in this state, we're seeing declining physical health, low energy and productivity, decreased capacity to learn and adapt, and we actually lack empathy. We lose the ability to have empathy and the ability to collaborate. So neurologically, the impact of not having these sort of social interactions, of not having uh, what we're calling peer coaching, um, is very clear. It's like one thing that's causing all these problems we're seeing in the workforce. If you look at your engagement surveys, employee surveys, and you look across the right here, these are all the things that are happening. And a lot of it can be tied back to this fundamental systemic issue around loneliness. So the critical move, if we go back to Dan and Chip's book, the critical move here, we believed, was human connection. Um, that if you have human connection, the research shows it produces oxytocin in the brain. Oxytocin coming out, right? This is the same thing that happens um, when nursing a child, same thing that happens during sex. This is a very powerful drug. 
And when we have that release, it actually uh, makes it easier to connect with people. So then we have more human connection, more oxytocin, easier to connect, human connection. You see the flywheel starting to go in our favor instead of against it. The key, though, to have these types of uh, interactions be able to be effective, though, is that they need to be human connections that are positive, consistent, and vulnerable. Um, there's a great book that just came out called the, the Business of Relationships, which talks about this. Great book if you haven't uh, seen it already by Shasta Nelson. But talks about these are the three things we need to have human connection that actually produces this outcome. But again, the research shows when this is happening, all the data, all the things we measure in the workplace start to flip just through this one critical move. It's not about a thousand things. One critical move. Sorry, two fingers at one, one finger. One critical move. Improved physical health. Improved energy, productivity, increased capacity to learn and adapt, empathy, ability to collaborate. Like these are the things every CEO is asking for. And we're trying a thousand things, but it's this one critical move that appears to be, based on the research, the thing that matters the most. So with that understanding, you know, late last year, um, we went out and we raised venture capital because we finally figured out what we thought was the critical move, the thing that can change work and the lives of everyone in the workplace in a dramatic way, in a simple way that can scale. And we raised money and we started to try this with a few alpha clients, um, some early adopters who are willing to, to try this. Um, and after you know, raising the money, being able to build out uh, more of our technology to enable this peer coaching at scale, we brought on uh, beta clients over the spring and summer and had them do uh, peer coaching with uh, employees at their companies. And then we did over 100 hours of interviews. So not only were we doing data analysis, we were doing qualitative interviews to tr really understand um, what was going on. Was this working? Was all this sort of abstract research actually true when you applied it? Um, similar to, again, with Dan and Chip talked about with the Vietnam village, were we seeing that when you actually proactively tried to do it, did it make a difference? And based on those results, I mean, what we're seeing is that, uh, you know, analysts are starting to see this as sort of the, one of the top sort of new trends, breakthroughs in HR going into next year. So just to give you a sense of who was involved in this beta, um, just these are the companies that were involved in uh, beta testing, uh, this idea of peer coaching on um, this platform. Uh, you'll see it's everywhere from, you know, nonprofit organizations to massive global companies, across industries, across geographies, a very broad coalition of companies. They were involved in this, uh, this beta testing of the imperative platform. So our learning goals as we went through this beta, we wanted to know, is peer coaching effective? Um, does it build meaningful relationships? Who is the ideal target employee? Is this, you know, a good solution for everybody or is it more for specific people? Um, what are the right topics for conversations um, in a peer coaching platform? What is the right cadence? Should people do this every hour, once a year? Like, what's the right cadence for doing this kind of uh, relationship? What's the core value to HR executives um, of this? What is the core value to employees? And what value could Imperative provide as a platform to enable this, this work? So before I go into the findings, I wanted to share what the people in the beta actually experienced. Um, so they were on our peer coaching platform, which is a video-based peer coaching platform where two people are matched, and they have a conversation for an hour. And we are providing them with the questions, follow-up questions, and insights about each other that enable the two people to have a really sort of hopefully meaningful conversation that's really guided by experts in behavioral science and coaching um, so that they're able to really um, hopefully have a uh, – an effective coaching conversation, an effective, positive, consistent, vulnerable conversation um, without any training necessary to go into it. That was our sort of design principle around it. And the whole model was based on agile learning. Um, 
agile learning, which is that people would reflect. So you and I spend time talking to each other, reflecting, asking each other questions, taking notes for each other. At the end, I would ask you, what's one thing you're going to do as a result of our conversation? And you'd tell me what you're going to do. I'd type that in for you. You would then go and try that, just like I would try the one I said. And then afterwards, um, we would come back together, and I'd ask you, did you do it? And was it effective? Did it increase your fulfillment? Did it make you more fulfilled? Did it have other impacts on your work? And then we'd go back to reflect. So maybe it didn't work. So, like, why? Let's talk about it. Maybe it did work. How do we do more of it? How do we build off of that? So it's this continuous process of um, adaptation um, that we uh, sort of built into the system based, again, on how uh, you know, behavioral research so what is peer coaching? So we asked people, like, how would you describe what you did? Just to, to anchor this. So um, I'll give you a second just to look at this and sort of see what pops out to you. But core idea is here, peer coaching brings two people together to ask each other questions, engage in conversation that can lead to powerful self-reflection and coaching of another person and inspire them to take ownership of the things they want to achieve. Or over here, it's learning through storytelling, Right. Um, I like this one. It's a combination of something that's interactive and structured, not like going to get coffee with your buddy. And I think that's what a lot of companies have been trying to do is solve for this loneliness epidemic with things that are proxies for coffee. But to have that positive, vulnerable, consistent relationship um, requires uh, more than that. Um, so that's what peer coaching is. So let's go into the findings. Finding number one. So after doing all that work with all those companies over the spring and summer, here's what we found. At the end of each conversation, we asked people, was the conversation valuable? 56% said it was very helpful. 24% said it was helpful. And 16% said they had a breakthrough in that conversation, like a real breakthrough in their thinking um, and how they were seeing the world about um, prioritizing, something that was like a breakthrough for them. And you can see that basically, statistically, no one said it wasn't helpful. A few said, eh, somewhat helpful. But you can see the like, vast majority said that this was a very helpful exercise of having this conversation with somebody. And if you look at similar results for coaching with a professional coach, um, you see very similar helpfulness scores. So um, it was really clear that we were able to create in that conversation the kind of vulnerable, positive conversation that you would have with a professional coach, despite not paying for one. As I shared earlier, at the end of each conversation, people pledged an action. They made a commitment to do something. Um, the next time they got together, when they asked each other, did you do it? 80% said, yes, I took the action. I did the thing I said I would do. And that just speaks to the power of uh, social uh, accountability, saying it out loud, having someone else there um, who is you know, tied to your results, tied to your success. 80% basically had some level of behavior change following through on that action. Um, and then we asked them, like, okay, so if you did the action, did it impact your fulfillment? 98% said it impacted their fulfillment. So if we just go back to the very simple premise of the Heath Brothers book, um, it really does hit on this squarely, which is that when two people are in a vulnerable, positive conversation, um, and when it's structured to enable them to be in that state, and they're focused on action um, about helping each other make changes, this is absolutely creating a fundamental shift in their fulfillment, which is very correlated in other research to engagement, productivity, I mean, all the different measures we care about in the workplace. So um, first and foremost, like this does work. Um, the data is showing this does work just like um, the changing of meals, uh, the adding of shrimp and crab, the adding of sweet potato greens, the uh, helping people, uh, kids make sure they eat all their uh, all their food. Um, this 
based on, you know, pretty good sample here with quite a few diverse companies are showing this actually is the thing, the simple action that changes everything. We looked into some other things as I shared. Um, this is building actual relationships, and we all know how important relationships are now, and we know the majority of people say they don't even have meaningful relationships at work. And this is at the core, I believe, again, of why we see such disengagement, why we see such low fulfillment in our companies, that when someone does this peer coaching after just three conversations, there we go, three, um, 97% of people said, uh, I have now built a meaningful relationship. That's three hours of time, and they have a meaningful relationship. Like, what else does that, right? I mean, this showed such promise. And, you know, as this quote says here, it surprised me how quickly you can get to know somebody. Um, we can actually dig in deeply when we have the right scientifically designed process. And what people are saying is the peer coach is someone who cares about them. They're a champion for their growth. So it's no surprise people feel like they have a meaningful relationship there. And this is just after three hours. We then looked at, you know, what is the sweet spot for peer coaching? And what we heard is that, you know, we, we did this with entry-level folks. We did this with managers. We did this with executives. Consistently, all of them had a, a great experience. Every single person involved in the, the beta that we interviewed said they would want to continue doing it. Um, but what we heard from people was if you had to only pick one population where this would make the greatest impact, it was people managers. People managers are in a role where they're undertrained, they feel very isolated, they don't have people to talk to, um, they're um, wanting to talk through what's going on with them at work, they don't have a sounding board that's safe for them. They were the population that had the highest scores and the highest positive response to it. Um, the secondary was individual contributors. Uh, people sort of more on that front line um, were the population that had the second best outcomes um, that was necessary. And I love this quote here. Uh, I got almost no training as a new manager, and with COVID, it has been really challenging. Having someone who's going through the same thing was invaluable. So just that ability to have empathy, to be um, have someone in your sort of sidecar who's going through the same stuff is, is truly transformational for managers. We also wanted to understand, like, what is it people were using their conversations for? What were they trying to improve? What were they trying to do to be more successful, more fulfilled? And, you know, we asked people, especially around their actions, like, what did you focus on with your actions that you pledged? Um, the most common was relationships. People said, you know, this action I'm taking is to improve my relationships at work. And then, you know, about half of people said they picked an action that was about, I want to be more impactful. I want to be able to have more success. And then half said, I want to grow. Um, I did an action to help me grow. And obviously these numbers don't add up to 100 because some actions were about more than one. Um, and this is a quote from a CHRO who was involved um, from a biomedical company. And I love what she said here. We can't design programs to meet the needs of every manager. I'm sure you can all relate to that. We can't do it for every manager or anticipate what they need at a specific time, right? So even if I told you right now, I really have a problem with this. I want to talk about it with you tomorrow. Come tomorrow, it might be something totally different. So as, a, as an HR leader, it's really hard to anticipate or meet that incredible diversity of need. But what she saw was that peer coaching is a single program that meets each person where they are in that moment. It is the first thing that truly addresses the need for mass personalization um, when we think about employee engagement, employee growth, career development, uh, manager training. It actually, because it's dynamic and in the moment, actually operates with this ability to have mass personalization, um, unlike anything before. So the next question we looked at was, what is the right cadence? How often should people be doing this? How do people, you know, how should they approach it? And one of the things we were concerned about is, like, this takes time, and people are very busy. 
And one of the things we found as we interviewed people is folks said in general that they were spending three to five hours a week trying to build relationships and mostly unsuccessfully. So they said like this actually was not a time, something that sucked up time. It actually um, was a time multiplier in terms of how they were using that time to build relationships, but also because it helped them prioritize, it helped them solve problems, it helped energize them, that they called it a time multiplier. What we found um, as we talked to people and looked at the data was that the right cadence was as follows. Um, one hour conversations. They felt like this is not something you can do in five minutes. This is not like social media. Several said this is like the uh, anti-Slack, anti-Facebook. Uh, this is actually something that's about deeper, true interaction, and it requires time. The action pledge was critical to making it effective. That while some wanted it every week, some people wanted it like less frequently, what we found was sort of the Goldilocks um, just right was about every two weeks um, to have one of these types of conversations. That They said they wanted to have roughly five conversations with each partner. Um, they wanted to have an introductory conversation to get to know each other, they wanted three real deep dive hard work sessions, and then they wanted one to synthesize and close um, that uh, chapter. And they said that they would roughly like a new partner every quarter. So every quarter having a new partner. So over the course of a year, you would have uh, four partners, um, and you get to know four people in the organization that you probably otherwise would not interact with. So that's really how we've designed the platform since completing the research. It's one hour online guided meaningful peer conversation. There's four questions, which basically takes that hour and you include the action in it that they're asking back and forth. There's five sessions. Pairs meet for five conversations every two weeks. They have one of them. And then over the course of the year, you'd have four different partners, four people in your organization that are peers that you would get to know better that may not look like you, maybe in a totally different function, um, but that you build this kind of positive, vulnerable, consistent relationship with. So moving towards the end here, um, we then asked you know, what is it when we interviewed CHROs and heads of learning, um, senior HR execs in these companies, where did they see the value when they tried peer coaching? And this is what they, what they shared. And this quote on the right really captures it well. I'm tired of managers coming to me with every problem. This lets them solve their own issues. So when we think about employee analytics, when we think about employee engagement, like this is really at the crux of it, which is, how do we help people solve their own problems? How do we help them identify it? And how do we basically create a closed circuit mechanism where people are measuring and taking reflection on what's going on in their work? When they're identifying problems and opportunities, they're actually taking action to resolve them um, so that this becomes this continuous mechanism of measurement solve, measurement solve, right? This is what Amazon does so brilliantly in their business model. They have these mechanisms. Um, so they make sure that everything they do is constantly learning and improving on itself. And what this does is does that for the human being. It helps each employee do that. So they said the core stated value is that increased ownership and level of engagement. This is what they saw for themselves and the people in their organization involved. Um, it reduced dependency on their manager and HR to solve for individual engagement and team issues. It facilitated ongoing guided and actionable conversations between peers that hold each other accountable for their own engagement. And we asked them, like, what else would you be doing? Like, what are the alternatives to this? And they said, well, coaching. Um, but coaching is expensive. Um, they're outside perspectives, and there isn't that relationship that's built. It's a one-way relationship. Talked about mentoring, but they said mentoring doesn't scale. Like, it's great, but they have a subset of people who can mentor um, and a whole lot more people who want the mentoring. And it's really hard to do the matching, and the quality is incredibly uneven. And the relationships aren't as strong because there isn't as much psychological safety because it tends to be hierarchical. Um, politics and psychological safety goes down. And then they talked about courses, you know, you know, sending people on classes to help them with their learning and their engagement. They said, look, 
they're awesome, but there's like almost no behavior change and there's no social reinforcement of it. So they really said this is more effective for this need um, than, you know, coaching, mentoring or courses. But when we asked the employees, like, what what is it that they found of value in this? And as I shared, 100 percent of the people who were interviewed said they want to continue doing peer coaching. Um, they talked about how this you know, reignited fire for them, help them um, focus on what makes their work meaningful and help them stay focused on the positive. This whole thing's designed to help people be in a constructive, problem solving, positive mindset um, and, you know, really push them to change. So when we asked them, you know, what was the value, what they said, first and foremost, it helps me be more effective and fulfilled at work. Right. Isn't that what we sort of talked about at the beginning of this conversation? How do we help people be more effective and fulfilled at work? It increased their productivity, they said. It helped them build more trusting and trusted relationships, help them own their personal career growth and engagement, and it helped them stay positive. Um, really, really important, especially right now. And we again asked them, you know, what else would you be doing to solve for this? They said, well, my a manager or mentor is great, but I lack safety with them because um, I don't want to share everything with uh, someone who's more senior to me in the organization. And I also worry about wasting their time. Like, I can't bring everything to my manager or to a mentor. Um, and a lot of times I just want to talk through something or I just need to verbalize something. I think of that as similar to, like, in a, in a you know, a relationship with a spouse. It's like sometimes you just want to be able to, like, share what's going on. It's not about problem solving. Um, you just need someone to share um, your experience. And they said coaches have been really helpful, but they lack shared experience and organizational knowledge. Um, and again, it wasn't like a real relationship um, with value. So I think they, they really articulated this value um, really powerfully. And if I just ask people, you know, is there a role here for a company like Imperative with our technology to help people do peer coaching at scale inside companies? And the four areas, especially that the uh, the HR leaders articulated, were really breakthroughs for them. One was matching, that the system does all the matching to find the right pairs and does that dynamically so that there's no work involved for the HR leader to match people. Um, we provided guided conversations to keep people positive, um, to make sure people didn't need training. They could just go immediately into these conversations. Um, be able to do measurements so they can actually see what's working and they can report back to stakeholders uh, the value of this. And then customization, the ability to have a peer coaching platform where they can provide questions that they want their employees to talk about in addition to the ones that we're providing. And then we're able to, through purpose profiling, to insert dynamic custom personal content for each employee that really makes it uh, align with who they are at their best self. So I just want to close this out before we open this into the conversation with a couple of things. One is we did research a couple of years ago and we asked people um, who's responsible uh, for your fulfillment. What people said, you know, the, the vast majority said, 68% said, I'm responsible for my own fulfillment. And I think what we've done in people analytics, what we've done in HR leadership is we tend to think it's the manager, uh, the company that's responsible when if you actually look at this from a science and behavioral perspective, this is so much tied to the individual. And people are saying, look, I need to do this. I'm responsible. But we're not giving them the tools to take that and act on it. We're not giving them um, what's needed to actually take that ownership. And I think what peer coaching does in that simple move is it gives people that ability to take ownership of it, to remove this sort of paternalistic, hierarchical look at work and to say, what if we treated employees like adults and gave them the support among each other to actually solve their own problems, could this be that, you know, that silver bullet, that, that simple uh, act? So I just want to, you know, challenge everybody to think about, is peer coaching, could this be the one thing that is actually that critical move by building human connection through positive, consistent, 
vulnerable relationships that is going to address the physical health of your employees, their well-being, their energy and productivity, their capacity to learn and adapt, and their ability to collaborate and have empathy. Could this one simple move actually address the complexity of the workplace? Could it be so simple as just helping people have positive, consistent, vulnerable conversations that are frankly um, very rare in our current workplace where technology has pushed us to be more and more transactional? Um, it's more and more of our communication is about status. It's about information. It's not about this human connection. Have we made a workplace that lacks so much human connection that all these problems on the right can be solved to a large degree simply by rebuilding human connection? If any of you are interested in learning more about sort of what this looks like, uh, my colleague Carrie Murphy, who's the HR Director for Global Manufacturing at Boston Scientific, um, is going to be doing a webinar with me um, on December 8th. And uh, we're going to be talking about what she's seen by deploying peer coaching at Boston Scientific as she's tried to figure out how do I scale inclusion across the business through manager-to-manager coaching? So how can we actually scale inclusion in the workplace using this model? And if any of you are interested in uh, participating in the webinar, um, you can just go to our site, imperative.com, and uh, register and hopefully uh, join us and you know ask questions of Carrie about what has she actually seen as an HR leader about how breakthrough peer coaching can be. Um, wanted to give you my contact information, just Aaron at imperative.com, um, if you're interested in uh, further conversation after that. But um, what I really want to do is just open this up to uh, to questions and conversation, uh, Al. And uh, with it, I'm going to stop the share, and uh, let's just focus on our beautiful mugs. <laughs> we'll give it a go. Aaron, I, I, just first off, bam. <laughs> oh, I knew it. I knew it. Just like that. I just so good, right? Um, got a new copy because I have a habit and I'm not going to call it a nasty habit of giving books away. Uh, but I got a new copy because I referenced it when talking to our son. And so I'm going to, this is going to land with a, a question because he is in the second year at uh, UC San Diego. However, he's in the other room over here. And so, you know, for, it's tough for us all being in this remote situation, right? But he's trying to learn complex problems, staring at a glowing rectangle for, you know, eight plus hours, you know, a day. And it's a struggle. And so I have really been advocating that he find some way to connect. Now, granted, you know, you have somebody who's on a call or, or whatever tool that they use for 10 minutes or so to answer a given question. And then you're alone again. And you're certainly not in a coffee shop. You're certainly not, you know, having a study group and all that. So we're, we're lacking this connection. So I'm biased to what you're bringing to the world because I see the value of connection. I see the absence of connection, not only with our son, but what's going on, frankly, with, with me uh, in this room, and tr- you know, trying to, you know, bring energy and make things happen. So the plant behind you is not doing the trick. <laughs> trying. Um, but my question to you is, is this, is given that we're in a, a situation where th- this reality that I just described, um, peers have been uh, kind of more casual relationships as, a, as opposed to structured, uh, purposeful relationships. So, so can you speak to the need to kind of reframe, if you will, or maybe nudge or nuance the relationships that we have to make it a priority to really not only share what's going on with you, but also be a resource to others. So it's a true exchange of ideas. 
Um, no, and I, first of all, I just say, like, I don't think it's a bias that you have a bias towards this. Like, this is such a fundamental human need. Um, mm-hmm. I think everyone in the world has that bias. Maybe it's not a bias. Yeah. Um, so just want to make sure you frame it that way. Um, I think what's happened in the workplace is that um, we've gotten this idea of efficiency and that efficiency is king. Like, it's really started with, you know, Henry Ford and the assembly line. And so we're just moving to, like, take air out of the room to make sure everything's just super condensed. And in that, we sort of stigmatize the idea of a conversation that's just about, like, how are you doing, what's going on at work, what challenges are you facing, um, being able to do that. Um, we've also built a culture where, like, it's all about, you know, projecting strength instead of having vulnerable, real conversation because so much is weaponized or there's a perception of things being weaponized that, um, again, it's sort of like, ah, I'm not sure, like, that's an appropriate thing to do. And there was that whole movement around um, the fact that, like, you're not supposed to have friends at work. Like, that has been, like, a major part of corporate culture for so long and couldn't be, like, further from being just bullshit. Like, um, that is just in so many ways not true. And I'll just give you one stat that we had from research. We found that of people who said they had meaningful relationships in their life overall um, and were working full-time, only 2% of them said they didn't have them at work. Hmm. Like we just we can't have this continuous myth about the fact that these are like two separate realities. Um, the other thing I'd point to, and uh, this is actually just straight out of the business, uh, the business of relationships, um, Shasta's book. She talks about like when is it that we had our best relationships, um, and really it was like in school, um, because you have these same consistent people you are consistently doing things with over and over again over a period of time, right? That was when we were having those relationships, and. Now, I think you have to look at that as a model. Um, and if you look at the interactions we had with classmates, um, they were peers. And we didn't just talk about math equations. Mm. Right? Um, we didn't just talk about, like, the, the assignment in front of us. Like, we had real conversations, whether it was about, you know, what girl do you like or whether it was about are you struggling with this work here or what's going on with you or, you know, did the Yankees win the game last week? Like, there's continuous conversation, and we truly got to know each other. And I would look at that as a model for companies like, how to think about people more as like classmates mm. um, in this class where we're all trying to be successful towards the same goal. Um, yeah. And you see that also with uh, you know sports teams that are effective done that really well um, as well as sort of like recognizing the need for those relationships on the team among, yeah. among the peers. So anyway, I don't know if I answered your question, but I enjoyed no, it. It's, it's fantastic. I mean, you're certainly uh, making me reflect on, you know, how I prioritize my time actually, as well as, you know, how I would continue to advocate uh, for my son and, and our daughter will be off in college next year. And as you're sharing this, I'm thinking about her experience as well. So I say that because it's beyond just the workplace. It's to your point, it's how we you know, function as human beings and it's been a deficiency that it's seven, eight months old and it actually predates that now pre- predates COVID, of course. Oh, we predate so it. I was, I was completely guilty of this. I also just want to say, like, I think um, I'm converted. I remember, um, probably like 15 years ago, relatively early in Taproot's history, we'd set up a meeting, um, with the head of a corporate foundation for doing fundraising. Um, my development director had set it up and I was like, what's the agenda? What's the goal? What are we trying to achieve? And she said, um, we're just trying to connect and build a relationship. I'm like, that is not an agenda. That is not a goal. Um, I want to know, like, what are we talking about? What are the data points? What are the outcomes? She's like, no, this is a meeting about a relationship. And I was okay. like, that's like an utter waste of time. Like, why are we wasting this person's time? And it turned out to be a fantastic meeting. And it, like, completely, like, like made me realize how much of an idiot I had been um, about this. But I just want to say, like, I'm not preaching based on the fact that, um, this is intuitive to me. Like this actually has been a journey for me because I have been taught all those things 
along the way that I had to sort of unlearn. Well, you know, here we are in this remote work reality and, you know, we're, we don't see a finish line, although, you know, there's good news around a vaccine, but even who knows how long it's going to take before that's probably throughout, uh, not only the United States, but throughout the world. So with that in in mind, uh, there's so much effort being put into quote unquote figuring out a remote work strategy, a return to workplace strategy. Why do you believe, and you've said this before, but you know, there's, why should this be a priority? Uh, it's just the case that, or actually, let me reframe that question. How can or should this, in your view, be elevated and to to something? Okay, we're going to do this because so many are saying, okay, it's going to be getting an ergonomic, uh, you know, consultant. It's going to be uh, having um, more boundaries on meetings. You know, there's all these like little nudges or initiatives that are in place. You know, the idea of connecting peers, you know, is not something that people wake up and say, okay, I'm going to do that. You know, so why um, or how do you believe this should be elevated in terms of priority? What's the, the case for it? There's no way to meet the needs of everyone working from home with all their sort of specific needs. Yeah. Um, people have to solve their own problems. Like, we have to start with that premise, and you need to be there to empower them. And it's not about just, like, this, like, giant flood of resources Mm-hmm. Um, it's about giving them space to actually reflect on what they need, how things are going, and adjust in real time. Because what we're t- dealing with is not just work from home and a pandemic. It's about continuous change. Mm-hmm. So any solution that's like tied to a current state, by definition, is also going to be obsolete pretty quickly. So mm-hmm. it's about building um, that ability um, more broadly. And I, I go back to my dad when he was doing his Ph.D. He did his uh, Ph.D. in um, basically organizational um, development um, at mm-hmm. Michigan. And I was in high school at the time, and uh, he had a post-it note right next to his computer. It was not a laptop. It was one of these big beasts. Um, and it just was a the, the, the cliche acronym KISS, keep it simple, stupid. <laughs> he had a tendency to just overthink everything when he was working on his dissertation. And um, I think that's sort of the general challenge of what we're doing overall in the workplace right now is, like, we're overcomplicating this in a big way. We go to, like, keep it simple, stupid, and just talk about, like, well, what would your kid need right now? Mm-hmm relationships, supportive relationships with their classmates, right? Um, what is it we need as human beings? We need relationships. We need connection. We need to solve our own problems. So I would just take, have people take a deep breath, take a step back, and just realize that like, if we do this one simple thing, it has a cascading effect of everything else. So stop trying to sort of address the symptoms. Let's address the root, and the root will address the symptoms. And yet what I see is like 90% of companies are focused on symptom management, that does not fundamentally work. It's great for consultants. It's great for different, you know, content providers because they're selling symptom solutions to everything. But, like, what if we actually go to the root, which is this need for reflection and relationships and support? Mm-hmm. We're going to see those symptoms just go away. Yeah. Gosh, I, I, yeah. <laughs> I am so, um, yeah, I'm jumping up and down inside here because I have seen organizations, to your earlier point, suppress the idea that we should connect on a human level. It's like the water cooler conversations where it's happened is very kind of transactional. It's you almost feel guilty that you're spending too much time there. If you spend a little extra time at lunch, I was damn, I'm late for a meeting, you know, so it's been so constrained. And what I'm hearing you advocating is that 
here we are in this remote work reality. We can be connected, be more supported. And even when we go back to the workplace, these will perpetuate, will be in a better standing. And so this is, in other words, not just a remote work solution. This is a way to transform the way we work as individuals and as organizations. Is that right? Yeah. No, and it's adaptive, right? Yeah. Um, and I think a big part is also just inclusion, right? Like um, the ability for me to do peer coaching with someone who may not look like me or have the same background, who I would otherwise might be sort of tentative about not offending or not knowing how to go into the conversation when we're giving them prompts to talk to each other, it breaks all that down, and suddenly you've got a best friend who you never would have talked to before, right? Yeah. So we can take people into unconscious bias classes, like all this stuff, which are helpful to a point. Or we can, like, really invest as well in just having people build relationships with people that they wouldn't normally, right? Yeah. And when you look at, like, a lot of homophobia, for example, generally it's people who've never knowingly, like, had a relationship with someone who is gay, for example. Or a lot of racism is people who haven't actually had meaningful relationships with people that are different. If we force them to build those relationships, it suddenly humanizes people, and you can't be as judgmental, you can't have all the stereotypes because it's actually humanizing, right? Um, So as I look at it, Alex, um, if you could have someone in two hours a month be able to increase their health, increase their productivity, increase their empathy and ability to have like an inclusive workplace um, to be able to be adaptable and to suddenly have a growth mindset and learn. It just takes two hours a month. Like, why in God's name wouldn't you do that? Yeah, it's a pretty damn good return on investment right there. Yeah. A couple more questions before we wrap. And by the way, I should say this earlier. If others uh, who are listening in uh, have questions, you can go over to the right and and, uh, submit your questions. We might sneak it in here at the end. But I I do have a couple. Going on a tactical level, uh, we are all constrained. and We were constrained before with uh, our capacity to manage our work, our lives with, uh, you know, kids, elderly parents, just, you know, general relationships. And so how do we carve out space to do this? You know, we can't have 10 peers that we're engaging with, or maybe we can, you know, what's the optimal, you know, number? And are these, uh, you know, there's the serendipitous, you know, relationships that are, are wonderful. Yeah. We don't have the environment by which to create these really. So, you know, can you talk about the capacity to have these peer-to-peer relationships that are truly uh, valuable, deep, and meaningful as opposed to transactional? Yeah, I mean, people waste so much time at work. I mean, we've seen that in study after study, the number of productive hours you have at work. Um, and people are spending, as I said earlier, three to five hours a week just trying to build relationships and to do things like Zoom happy hours, which are not terribly effective. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe they're fun once, but they quickly sort of lose lose value. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you have plenty of time for this. It's a question of priority um, mm-hmm. and being able to, to make that investment. Um, you know, what we saw this year in the research was, you know, people said that, you know, an hour every two weeks for a given relationship, like, really makes, builds a consistent, positive, vulnerable sort of interaction. And then after about five of them, it starts to become something where they have enough of a relationship that they can carry that on um, with someone. And that to build, you know, four of these in a year felt like the right um, amount for folks to be able to have those um, those relationships. Mm-hmm. Are they going to be, like, in close contact with every one of those people in five years? Like, most likely no, right? Some of them will stick more than others, but there'll be that baseline of trust that they can go to each other um, and support each other. Mm-hmm. So I don't think there's, like, a time issue. I think it's more of a discipline issue of doing it. And I go back to the Vietnam village parallel, right, from Switch, um, one of the main differences was, and this is so applicable, um, the parents that had kids that were malnourished just assumed the kids would eat as much as they want, 
Um, because I assume, like, if the kids are hungry, like, they know their, know their body. Um, if they're hungry, they're going to be eating as much as they need. But they actually found, no, that wasn't the case. They needed to actually um, ensure that they were eating enough uh, and pushing them to eat, uh, which seems crazy when you think about it, right? Yeah. It may be, like, crazy to think you need to help people connect when people are saying they're lonely and isolated. Like, you shouldn't have to force them to do it. Um, or sort of build that rhythm. But we actually have to create a behavior change here that requires companies to provide some oversight to say, no, we we encourage you to do this. We expect you to do it. Um, we're going to help you make this happen until we get to the point where people start to really um, do this naturally. Um, it's not enough. So I think that's the other piece of it. Companies have to, just like those parents, had to say, no, you need to, like, you know, eat more. And it's like, no, spend more time with your peers. Spend more time supporting each other. God, yeah, so – when you talk about discipline and stuff, so obviously the barrier to entry to open up a social media app is extraordinarily low. And yep. what I'm hearing, too, is that, hey, why do we do that? You know, we want the, the serotonin or whatever, you know. Uh, yeah, the dopamine. Yeah, dopamine. Thank you very much. <laughs> you know, get that rush. Like drugs, man. Yeah, exactly. I'm working on it. <laughs> so you you want that that feeling, right? But there's no reason – you know, I would put it tenfold that if you're connecting with another human being in real time, not only as a resource uh, to be heard and get support, but also support other people. You know, that helps us feel good, brings us energy. And even if we're just, you know, not even in an exchange of value per se, but just really being there, that in and of itself elevates both. So uh, what I'm getting at is this is a substitute. Um, and a better one to actually reach out and connect with human beings as opposed to just, you know, hope the dopamine rush, you know, from social media gives us that, you know, satisfaction. Is that part of some of the, uh, the substitute that is currently in place that peer to peer coaching can, you know, elevate and deliver more value? Yeah. I mean, social media, I and mean, I watch it with my kids. I'm sure you do with your kids. I mean, in general, like it's not, it's not healthy time, the vast majority of it. It's yeah. not building relationship. It's not building the skill to communicate. Um, it's leaving a lot of people feeling isolated and judged um, um, in the world. Uh, so I see this as like a very, a much more productive use of an hour than, you know, reading and liking a bunch of stuff on LinkedIn or on Facebook mm-hmm. um, or sort of even Slack, like making that investment in yourself to be able to have true authentic relationships, just the ROI of that as a human being. Um, when you leave an hour, like Al, when you're on LinkedIn for an hour, right? Um, reading stuff, liking stuff, writing comments. Um, I've never found I've left that hour more energized than when I started. I can't remember the time. I, like social media actually energized me, right? Yep. It's usually anxiety. I didn't have people like it, the comments, or just like this drone. Um, every time I've done a pure coaching conversation, like just crazy wave of energy. And like, I feel like I could work another 10 hours after it because, um, when we're able to be vulnerable, like it's amazing what that oxytocin release does in terms of pulling us forward. Um, it's fundamentally not energizing to do social media. It drains us, and it's basically draining us at the profit of the companies that are doing it. Like, it yeah. truly is sucking a resource out of us, energy. Pure coaching puts energy back into us, and energy, you know, the energy project was a great, you know, great example. Of that. I mean, the research, like, the importance of energy, mm-hmm. and this is at the core of that. Yeah. Guys, I, I'm sold. I'm sorry. Right. Also, since we're talking about books, uh, I don't know if you know, I have this one uh, behind me here, which I highly recommend. I, I, you should give this a read as well. Fantastic piece all, of All purple books I find are worth reading. So. Absolutely. <laughs> well done on the uh, on everything, actually. Uh, congratulations to what you're doing, to your team. Uh, how can people learn more about you and Imperative? 
Yeah, imperative.com. Uh, we've got research up there. Um, if people are interested in having us come in and, you know, do a small uh, demo with your team, happy to set that up for you. Um, this is an opportunity for us to not just, you know, address COVID or the pandemic. This is a chance to turn our society around. And I just looked to the election that just happened. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to come together. We need to stop seeing each other as the enemy. We need to start finding commonality. And that's not going to be done over social media. That's for damn sure. Um, it's going to happen through pure, meaningful, vulnerable conversations. So I, I don't, I don't only see this as the future of corporate, you know, future of work. This is the key to making sure, um, we repair the world and we bring, uh, you know, bring ourselves together forward together. So just everyone needs you to be part of this. We need to make this change. It's, it is an imperative. For sure. Hey, Aaron, again, thank you. My my phone's blowing up here with uh, all these likes uh, for what you're doing. Speaking of social media. So, yeah, absolutely. Congratulations again to what you're doing. I believe it's important work from a humanistic perspective. And, you know, it's implied that there's business value as as well, you know, with greater energy, greater connection and so forth. So, um, again, thank you for being here and sharing and uh, look forward to that. All right. You be well. Cheers. Cheers.